Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is shared death experience. My guest is William Peters, who is author of At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. William is a licensed psychotherapist at the Family Therapy Institute in Santa Barbara, California, specializing in end-of-life counseling as a means towards psycho-spiritual evolution. He is the founder and executive director of the Shared Crossing Project, where he and his research team collect and study extraordinary end-of-life experiences through the Shared Crossing Research Initiative. William is based in Santa Barbara, California. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, William. It's such a joy to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Thanks for having me, Emmy. Look forward to our dialogue. Shared death experiences is a term that might be new for people. Near-death experiences are more commonly understood. Could you share a little bit about what is a shared death experience juxtaposed to also what a near-death experience is? Yeah, sure. So as you said, and that's correct, that the shared death experience and the near-death experience in terms of phenomena are very similar. Uh, the difference would be that Obviously, a near-death experience happens when uh, the experiencer is close to death. They usually have a brush with death. Uh, it's usually physical uh, in terms of the, the challenge to their health, but it can also be psychological as well. So we know people that get under a great deal of stress can also have um, the out-of-body piece of the near-death experience. The shared death experience is, is different in this way. The shared death experience happens for a caregiver, loved one, it can even be a bystander. And they report that they shared in the journey from, uh, with the dying from their human life into uh, what's frequently called a benevolent or glorious afterlife. So if you see the near-death experience and the shared-death experience, the experiencers are looking at the same terrain or they're experiencing the same terrain that exists between this human life and what lot, what comes beyond but you know so the afterlife to use that term loosely a key understanding of the shared death experience is that the uh, motif that's dominant is journey so you it's really important to realize that the experiencer is not dying they are observing, witnessing, sensing, and sometimes uh, accompanying or assisting the dying in their journey, in their progression from this human life into the afterlife. And the experiencer has a series of phenomena, like I said, not to be redundant, very similar to the near-death experience phenomena, but they are not dying themselves. They are a caregiver loved one. They are healthy in mind and body, and they will come back to their human existence without any ill effects from the experience, only a sense of awe and wonder 
and profound transformation that I think we'll talk about uh, as we get into this interview. But that's, I hope that's helpful as a way to set the framework for what is, uh, we'll call it the SDE. So in a shared death experience, the person who's having the experience is a physical living person such as ourselves, but they're accompanying a loved one who is in the dying process. And in a shared death experience, it sounds like sometimes a person might be in the room with the individual who is passing, or they could have what I think you refer to as a remote shared death experience. Yeah, let, let's uh, go into the typologies, which has been um, something that I've been thrilled to study because when the shared death experience was first identified uh, as a term, and it's important to note that shared death experiences have been uh, recognized by different names, uh, at least in my literature review, since the late 1800s. So if you, if you look at the work, uh, Frederick Myers and, and Gurney and Podmore, all these great early uh, you know, researchers of non-ordinary or mystical experiences, they were, of course, associated with the um, London Society for Psychical Research. They had, in, in their publications, you know, the one that's probably best known is the it's a tome, um, I think it's human, I forget the name of it, but it's survival of, of human consciousness after bodily death. Um, and it was, it was published in around 1904. But this, in this uh, book, which is like seven, eight hundred pages, there are all sorts of references as to a variety of what they called apparitions. And they had apparitions around death, so at-death apparitions. A lot of these at-death apparitions um, refer, would be categorized as shared death experiences today. I'm sharing this so you know that I don't think I or my team has discovered anything in terms of phenomena. I think what we're doing is giving it, uh, certainly I will say, and, uh, and, and I can say this with some confidence, that I have provided the research-based typologies that will allow us to deeply understand uh, more of the nuances of the SDE. But if you continue with this lit review and from a historical perspective, Sir William Barrett in uh, 1926 or 27 there was, this was a book that was published after his death, but it was his work. It was called Deathbed Visions. There's about 50 some, 57 some odd accounts in this. And, uh, in my review of his, of these accounts, about, um, 17 of these would be shared death experiences. And, and so once again, not labeled as shared death experiences, but certainly would satisfy what we call shared death experiences. So let's move forward into uh, the question you asked directly. The typology that I have identified uh, that I find helpful is there are two basic types of shared death experiences. One is at bedside, and this happens in about a third of the cases that I've studied. Uh, it should be noted that when Raymond Moody first popularized the term shared death experience in 2010. He was working with cases that were presented to him that were all at bedside. So basically, uh, Raymond would receive a letter from somebody or correspondent saying, I had something very similar to a near-death experience, but it happened when I was at the bedside of my mother who was dying. And so Raymond you know, kept all these accounts 
And then he published uh, Glimpses of Eternity in 2010. And he identified some of the major features, but all of his cases were bedside. Well, when I started doing my research and collecting cases, and now, you know, I, I was a clinician more than anything else before I became a researcher. So I was working uh, with people in end of life and grief and bereavement, and I would hear hundreds of, uh, of, of cases, different types of shared death experiences and other phenomena as well. And I should mention that I created a, uh, a spectrum of end of life experiences because I find there are more than just the shared death experiences that happen at the end of life. There's all these pre-death visions of visitations. There's terminal lucidity. There's a whole host of post-death visions of visitations and synchronicities throughout. Um, so, there's that whole spectrum that your listeners can find um, if they're on my website, sharedcrossing.com. But the idea here is that the shared death experience was is clearly the phenomena that is the least recognized, the least understood. And it is not just happens for um, caregivers and loved ones at bedside. It can also be experienced remotely. So about two-thirds of these experiences happen remotely. And, and that also corresponds corresponds with Dr. Peter Fennick's work in Great Britain as he studied the experiences of uh, what they call in the UK carers or caregivers in the US uh, who, who were reporting these experiences as well. He called them uh, deathbed coincidences. Uh, but I've been in dialogue with Peter and he agrees that um, that they're not coincidences, but it works in the scientific community to, to use a more a speculative terminology for these experiences because they are difficult to explain. So there are death, there are for these shared death experiences, there's bedside and there's remote. And I should also say that there's a variety of modes of experiences as well, which we can get into. Could you share an example of a shared death experience? Now, I know that you yourself has also had a few near-death experiences and a really very powerfully emotive shared death experience with your own father. Is there any of these stories that you're willing to share? Uh, yeah, so I should say that, you know, you're right. I had two near-death experiences. The first near-death experience I had when I was 17 years old high-speed skiing accident um, at Squaw Valley right outside Lake Tahoe. And it was a classic near-death experience. I, I hit the snow extremely hard. I uh, broke my back, and I was immediately catapulted out of my body. And that I was things were dark for a moment after impact, but I had an observing aspect of myself there called that soul, spirit, consciousness, what have you, that observing aspect of self was present, but it was observing the darkness. And then the lights kind of came on in the periphery, and then I realized that I could see my body on the ski slopes, and I was moving rapidly away from my body, kind of gravitationally being pulled into um, you know, the universe, if you will. And, and I was at peace. I wasn't in any pain. I could see beautiful Lake Tahoe and then San Francisco Bay Area and uh, Colorado Rockies and then a satellite view of uh, first North America and then uh, planet Earth in all its splendor. But at that, during this, I had my life going, um, spinning by me. And, you know, in the near-death experience literature, we refer to this as the life review. And so I saw all the details of my life played out. 
Then I entered into this tunnel. I could still see the glorious uh, cosmos, and I was, you know, riveted by what I was experiencing. And finally, I saw the light at the end. And when I saw the light, I I grew up Catholic. So I looked at that light and I said, oh, wow, that is, that's God. And I was, you know, taken aback. But I also realized that I was dying and I had been in this space, you know, hundreds if not thousands of times before. I knew I was dying and I did not want to die. I remember quite clearly my natural, almost guttural plea with that light. God, don't let me die. I have not accomplished. I did not fulfill the aspirations of this lifetime. And I went into the light. Like I said, I was always comfortable, except for my mental anguish around having died earlier than I had uh, I'd wanted to. But in that light, I felt peace. I was resolved. If I was going to not return, that was fine. But I, I did feel a pushback on my being at one point, and then and then that source, uh, I'm fine with the term God, said to me, make something of your life. And so I returned to my 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 body on the ski slopes, and uh, that was my first near-death experience. It's important to know that experience, I think, for you know listeners, and I highlighted in my book, because that created an, an unconscious openness to these experiences. I didn't know what a near-death experience was. I was 17 years old. That was the, you know... Even though Raymond Moody has written his book in the mid seventies and this was, uh, the 1979, I was not exposed to that book. I had no idea that it was in existence. So, uh, but I would have other experiences and, you know, this was a, this was a strong experience for me and it really did change my trajectory, not just because I was deeply injured from it. I had, you know, severe back. Uh, pain and issues and limitation and trouble walking and trouble sitting and my identity as an athlete as a healthy young man was um, you know ripped away in that moment so I had a lot of internal psycho-emotional uh, strife if you will as I was adjusting to my condition which turned into a chronic pain condition for the next three or four decades I'm better now but um, but there was some tough times so I, this was a gateway experience to me and made me open to this type of experience. I would later work in Central and South America and work in, with cultures who had a, a view of, uh, the human experience as part of a larger, um, landscape of existence. So there was, I know your listeners are familiar with the shamanic journeys and such. I was working with Aymara Indians in Southern Peru. Uh, they were the indigenous people of the land there. And so just by working in these communities, uh, by osmosis, I was hearing about their cosmology. And I was like, wow, this works a lot better than what I was taught um, because it fit my my near-death experience. And so I would come back from that experience, uh, the four years in Central and South America, work in the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic as a social worker. I was hired because I was fluent in Spanish. But with the AIDS epidemic exploding in San Francisco, I was drawn into that work and started working with many people, uh, primarily young men who had, you know, contracted the HIV virus and were uh, in in dying processes. And in working with them and working with the communities, I started hearing about uh, the shared death experience and other spiritual end of life experiences, all of which, as I said earlier, I've captured on the spectrum of end of life experience because there are so many spiritual experiences, but the SDE 
is, I think, the most, um, you know, awe-inspiring, the most uh, mystical, the most transcendental. So those are some of my early experiences. I did have a second shared de- near-death experience in the ICU. And just to kind of provide one more experience about my shared uh, death experience, I worked in hospice at the Zen Hospice in San Francisco, and I did so primarily because I had become a Buddhist practitioner. So the Zen Hospice Project really fit well with my um, spiritual orientation and practice at that time. But also because I'd had uh, a lot of these, my own near-death experience, I'd worked during, you know, as I said, during the AIDS epidemic, I'd, I'd been privy to so many end-of-life experiences that I wanted to work more closely in a dedicated way with death and dying. And it was there that I had uh, a number of, of shared death experiences. But one of my kind of primary formative experiences happened with an individual named Ron, and Ron was, um, he was actively dying. He was unresponsive. And in one afternoon, I'd been reading to him, you know, almost every afternoon that I was there for the previous couple weeks. Um, but he was just seemed to be hanging out in this unresponsive, you know, comatose state, if you will. But as in hospice, we, you know, we know that the last sense door to, uh, close down or die is hearing. So we always, you know, talk to our patients. We read to them. Uh, we stay engaged verbally. And on this afternoon, I was reading him a story and I popped out of my body. And there I was hovering above my body. I still can see myself looking at the top of my head, the crown of my head, and I could see the words in my book uh, and the book I was reading to him. And I was still reading. And I could also see Ron uh, prone in his bed. But then I also had Ron on my right. And he was with me suspended in this out-of-body state. We were in this dimension hovering just above our physical bodies. And Ron was looking at me with big eyes, smiling, saying, check this out. And it was all telepathic communication. I could tell he was very happy and relieved. And in a certain way, showing me this and inviting me in here. Uh, and that's what we call in the shared death experience, a co-experienced OBE or out-of-body experience. So that when I had that experience, it was so clear. It was so, um, you know, and from my, from my perspective, so difficult for me to discount in any way. Here I was just reading. There was no stress on my body. I was at peace. Ron was at peace too. And I pop out of my body. How does this happen? What is this? Um, and it was at that point that I got extremely curious about these experiences. This is now almost 25 years ago. But I will say, even though the Zen Hospice Project was one of the most progressive hospices in the world at that time, very open-minded, there was no knowledge of these experiences. There was a sense that all sorts of things happened at end of life. But the experience of the shared death experience was not identified as a pattern or phenomena or I didn't have a label. So when I shared it with uh, my supervisor, who I loved, Eric, he just said, oh, William, phenomena rolling by, go to see Mary in bed 
three or something, you know. Now, that's also very Zen. You know, you don't hold on to anything, you know, just all phenomena arising and passing away. But still, it was a little bit deflating to me because I was excited. So I didn't share my experiences at Zen Hospice with my colleagues ever again. But I would have many more experiences there uh, and, and different types. You know, the most common type would be you're sitting at a bedside and all of a sudden there's a change in the time-space continuum. Like all of a sudden the room gets rounded, the light changes, things warp. Um, and and that's, that's being brought into a different dimension. And then soon after that, I may be actually in a cosmos of some sort. Like no, I'm no longer in that room uh, with a die, someone who's dying. I'm in another realm and I may see them, I may not. Um, I, but I'll probably more than, more than anything else, in most cases, I'll sense them there. Sometimes I saw them or a silhouette of them or something like them, some ghostly figure of them. But there's definitely a sense that I am with them in some way. Uh, and that they, that I'm there for some reason, I don't even know. I almost feel like I have been brought in for something I don't even know other than, um, that I'm just there with them. My mind goes to that those who are listening to this could easily think, and I think this is why it's so good that we're talking about this, and this is why a lot of people don't often talk about this, is that people can think, well, you're just making that up, or, you know, you just want to have that experience. However, in your research, I mean, we know that this has been going on for millennia, but also in your research, you've shown that people explain having experiences where they were visited by a loved one at the time of their passing. And sometimes the person wasn't even ill and their death wasn't even imminent. Yeah, that's the, uh, the most validating part of the research is that, as you said, people living their life, doing everyday things, shopping, driving, sleeping, are interrupted by the visitation, if you will, of the shared death experience in its myriad of forms. I'll share one that um, I know you're familiar with from the book. It's Allison. Allison uh, is shopping, middle of the day, and she's just looking over clothing options, and all of a sudden she sees her friend in the UK who's come to her and says to her, I'm sorry, I had to go. It was just my time. I want to thank you for being such a good friend. I love you. And I know I'll see you again. And a whole host of other phenomena that Allison recounts. Allison says that here she is shopping. She doesn't even think that she stopped shopping. She just continues to look over the clothing racks. And then she actually says that she even went to the cashier and purchased something. And this experience, she says she thinks it happened while she was looking over the clothes. It paused while she was purchasing the uh, items. And then she walks out to her car and she goes in the way that she walks out to her car. She actually realizes this experience is continuing and she still has communication contact with her departing loved one. In UK. Allison would say point blank and does in the book, I had no idea this experience was even possible. And then 
She gets a call moment, uh, moments later as she's getting into her car from her friend in the UK who says, just wanted you to know, so-and-so just died. And Allison then puts it all together and says, oh my gosh, no wonder I was thinking of her. Wait a minute. I think she came to me. I think she was communicating to me. So these are people who don't know about the shared death experience. They don't know that their friend is dying. And they have the experience. And they put the pieces together. And it all adds up. Very simply. My friend came to me to say thank you. To let me know that she was dying. And to let me know that she's okay. She's out of suffering. And that we'll see each other again. So we have over 150 cases like this, all with people who had no idea this phenomenon was even possible and would even in many cases would have disbelieved that the shared death experience existed, but for their own experience that transformed them. Yeah, that's a great story because it shows that here is a person who's just going about their day and then they're friend comes to them and provides this beautiful, simple, yet profound message. And did it, did Allison find that that experience helped her with her grief or with the process of accepting the passing of her friend? A beautiful question. And as a psychotherapist specializing in grief and bereavement, that is the most important aspect about the research is this is wonderful phenomena. These transcendental experiences, you know, which your viewers are very interested in, I'm sure, they're beautiful. They're awe-inspiring. They point to the, um, you know, the continuation of human consciousness beyond human death and the expansiveness of our minds, if you will. That's all well and good. I love the stories for that too. But it is the healing benefits. It is, it is the transformational um, value of these experiences. So, and I'll speak generally, what we see in the research is that almost 90% of the people, uh, our respondents, report that they believe, or they don't use the word believe, they use a different verb, uh, it used to be a gerund, knowing knowing that their loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. They also say that they know that they'll see their loved one again. They also report that they they feel like they will have a similar experience at the end of their life. They, in that moment, uh, if they didn't before, they say, I know there is an afterlife and it's good. And that their grief is uh, different, and we say that that is, that their grief processes are the resolution processes are in a certain sense enhanced or imbued with more meaning. What I mean by that is, you will always suffer and feel pain at the loss of a loved one, uh, even if they're old and it was their time. The absence from their from your life, the absence of them from your life, should naturally create a healthy experience of loss and a grief and bereavement process. What the shared death experience offers or delivers is the sense that while you lose your loved one and the loss is profound, it's leavened in a certain way 
it's contextualized with a sense that, oh, yes, this is a natural part of incarnating as a human being. You have a human birth, and then you have a human death. And they understand that this is the natural process of life. When a human life ends as it must, it continues into another existence. In the shared death experience, you feel, sense, and understand that this is the natural, healthy order of things. And while you miss the person, you have a deeper sense of appreciation and meaning uh, that makes your grieving process a lot a lot better in a certain way. It's more, it's more fil- uh, filled with meaning and, and the relationship continues in a certain way uh, that holds uh, some sense of purposefulness. Yeah, there's even a term that you talk about called continued bonds that I really love. Can you share a little bit about that? Continuing bonds is a grief and bereavement uh, therapeutic modality. Uh, To go back and kind of contextualize continuing bonds, prior to continuing bonds uh, being developed as this uh, grief and bereavement model, we had a rather classical psychotherapeutic model for grief and bereavement, which sounded something like your loved one dies, your job is to grieve them for a certain period of time, and the goal is to let go of that relationship, move on and find other relationships, essentially to replace that one. So your locus of relationship meaning moves away from the deceased and uh, into new relationships to fill that void. That model um, has some merit, but the, the emphasis on letting go and moving on from a continuing bonds perspective is unnecessary and in some cases unhealthy and detrimental to the to the griever, to the person who suffered the loss. Continuing bonds offers a different path of healing. Uh, we offer a the the bereaved an opportunity to maintain and continue their relationship with the deceased in a way that works for them. We offer them and engage them in processes of in a certain way, crafting their own relationship with the deceased based on a lot of factors. One is, what are they wanting? How much of a relationship do they want? How much do they want to remember? What do they want to remember? Uh, Do they want to do prayers and vigils and meditations and honorings and memorials? That's all part of a continued bond with uh, with their departed loved one. But what also continuing bonds is imbued with or informed by after-death communication. So do you feel like you're being visited? And we, you know, the research is clear. Over 54% of, uh, in, in North America, bereaved persons will state that they feel, they have felt the presence of their departed loved one at some point post-death. That's pretty profound. Um, and I think it's higher than that. And I think if we got more in tune with, um, these, the way in which the deceased may be reaching out to us, I think that number would, would increase greatly. But these experiences, whether it's post-death visions or visitations, synchronistic events, um, which can be things like 
you're looking at your clock and you see that a you notice frequently that digitally the display reads the the time of your the date of your anniversary with that person who departed or their birth date or your birth date or some significant date the and lights flicker when you think about them these are all these ways that for so many of us who are raised in you know more scientifically we may be thinking Oh, that's wishful thinking, or that's hallucinations, or however. As a researcher, I started out that way. I thought, nah, this is just wish fulfillment. But no. The data is so strong that the predominance of these synchronistic events suggests something is happening well beyond a typical probability. And, and so we invite these experiences to be worked with into the consultation room uh, to say, well, what do you make of that, uh, of your, this one just happened recently, of your uh, grandfather clock chiming every day at the time when you used to have tea with your loved one and you don't know why it's the only time of day it chimes because the clock, by the way, is broken. What do you make of that? Well, this person is reasonable, and I think anybody who is reasonable would say what this person said. It just doesn't make any sense. And when I hear that chiming and I think of my beloved, now departed, deceased, I feel my heart warm. I feel uh, her presence in a certain way. I think I would be dishonest if I did not express that I think she's communicating to me. And these expressions, and this would be a synchronistic event that sends a post-death synchronicity, it's followed up by a post-death visitation, if, in this case, he's saying that I feel her presence with me as I'm pouring that cup of tea. And as he said, I expressed to her, I'm glad you've joined me once again. And then I feel a surge of energy across my body. There's a relationship going on here. One that modern science is quite reticent to engage with because their model of consciousness does not allow for this. But I say to you as a, as a qualitative researcher, these experiences happen. They happen with more frequency and regularity. And that even those of us who are comfortable with these experiences do not share them broadly. Oh, I love hearing those stories. And your book is just full of so many of them. When I was reading your book, I was uh, on one hand, of course, like you say, there's a, a level of joy and bliss with being able to have these connections, these shared death experiences. And of course, the the loss that can come with it. But I've, I too have had, uh, thanks to you and your colleagues and your research, I now recognize that I had a shared death experience with my own mother who was declining from Alzheimer's for many years. And actually two weeks before this happened, one of my brothers, Joel, had a dream where my mother's parents, deceased, and her two brothers, deceased, were saying that they were waiting and watching. And then, and we didn't have any signs that her passing was imminent. She was still eating and, and functioning about the same she had been for about a year or two. 
And then a couple weeks after he had had that dream, I had a dream where my mother was hovering in the air and it seemed as though she was very peaceful and turning to light. And when you mention these, this term continuing bonds, I feel like that experience really helped me to connect with her. And actually, when I had had that dream, the next day I found out that she stopped eating and drinking and she passed a few days later. So I feel like that was her soul uh, sharing with me that she was moving on to the next level or dimension, wherever we go from here. Beautiful. Yes. Um, first, your experience that your brother Joel had is it is not that common for the a relative of someone dying to have what we would call a pre-death vision or visitation related to, in your case, you know, yours and his mother's imminent death. That experience that he described, that you described that Joel had, would typically be reported by the dying to the caregiver loved ones. This is very well known in, in, uh, in the literature. Uh, Dr. Christopher Kerr has done a good deal of research. He calls these end-of-life dreams, but it's throughout the literature recognized by different names, uh, deathbed visions, uh, pre-death visions. We call them pre-death visions or visitations. I don't think they're dreams. A dream, dream from a psychological perspective, when you're doing dream analysis and assessment, dreams are, can be incoherent. They can be highly symbolic. Things can be distorted. They often lack coherence. These visitations and visions are coherent. They're clear. The communication is clear. Uh, they're more real than real is what we hear all the time. And so it seems to me that Joel was breaking into or having his own. He was sharing, perhaps, in your mother's uh, pre-death vision or visitation by your dece deceased relatives. And I love the idea of the welcoming party because that is a theme in the shared death experience. It's also a theme in pre-death visions and visitations because the message that is communicated is that your loved ones are here. We are here. We're waiting for you. Get your things together. Get organized. Say goodbye. And we will welcome you here. We are, we are going to, you know, assist you or support you in your transition. That can all be delivered in pre-death visions and visitations. And we research those too, and we love those. In fact, I'm going to ask to talk to Joel at a later date because I love that experience. Um, but the shared death experience, um, which I think you had, tends to happen about 75% of the time right at the moment of death. But in some cases, like yours, they can happen a few hours, even days before the actual physical death or afterwards. Um, as well. And like I said, a quarter of these happen uh, just before or just after. Your case is, is beautiful because you are sharing in, and that's why we have the term, share death experience, you're sharing in what your mother is experiencing or will be experiencing. And, and it's very, as you said, affirming to you. It's very healing to you. And I can see the emotion on your face as you're remembering it. It's very beautiful. And this is, 
This is what we think the gift of the shared death experience is, as well as these other end-of-life experiences that Joel had, is that they let us know that our beloveds are well cared for. That while they're leaving us, they're going into the arms and love of other relatives, other ancestors, that will meet them on this journey from this life and and accompany them, guide them into a beautiful afterlife. So yes, uh, I'm so glad, Emmy, that you that you shared your experience because it just makes it so real. And I would say, I would hope that so many of your listeners um, are going, Bing, Bing, Bing. Aha! I had that. I didn't know. And, and that's why, you know, I'm so grateful that not only has our research been so well received by medical journal, uh, the medical, one medical journal in particular, the American Journal for Hospice and Palliative Medicine, uh, featured our article, the first research ever on the shared death experience, and the, and the reviewers, the peer-reviewed, uh, journal, when they wrote their responses to our research, they were like, thank you. We have heard about these experiences, um, forever in hospice and palliative care. But we never had a rigorous study that could identify these, quantify them, and provide a typology for us as end-of-life practitioners to use clinically to validate these experiences. So I share that because um, the validation is there, and the and the and the and even professionals in end-of-life know about these experiences, and yet we have been so reticent to speak of them. So I'm hoping that your listeners know that if they have these experiences, that they are well affirmed and supported in their experience. And of course, my book, as you've already highlighted, has, you know, uh, you know, a couple dozen plus deeply um, described experiences, both in terms of the relationships uh, the experiences themselves, uh, the beautiful seeing of angels and deceased loved ones and, uh, and the beautiful realm that exists there, as well as the therapeutic aftereffects. I think that had I found out that my mother had stopped eating and drinking would have been much more devastating to me had I not had that experience because I felt peace and a knowing of, oh, it's okay. This is, this is the next process for her and this journey and, and it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I love the way you said that. It's okay because, hey, your mother is dying. You have one mother. And, and this is devastating at a certain level, for sure. And yet there is something about the shared death experience that delivers with it some sense of, you just said it, like, this is okay. Yes, it's painful, but there's some transmission that this is how it is, and it is part of the divine plan. It's okay. Uh, yes, you will experience pain in, in your grief and bereavement, and yet there's something larger going on here. Your mother is continuing on her journey like you will at some point, and everyone that you love and care about will go this journey, and it's painful for a while, and yet we can handle this because because of continuing bonds as well. Because while human death ends a human life, it does not end a relationship. 
And then that's where we as, you know, me and my colleagues as clinicians have the responsibility, and I dare say it is a mental health responsibility, for us to affirm these experiences and offer the, the bereaved an opportunity, an invitation to continue this relationship as they see fit. You mentioned pre-death visions. Is that a type of shared death experience? No. Um, so, um, great question. So, on the spectrum of end-of-life experiences, which, like I said earlier, I, I crafted this as a guide for, primarily I wanted to have it for end-of-life practitioners of all kinds. But it's also very user-friendly, so now I teach about it in general public as well. But this captures and identifies all of the most common end-of-life experiences of a spiritual nature. They all suggest there's some communication across the veil between the living and the deceased. So the first uh, phenomena is pre-death premonition. And these can happen, you know, days, months, even years in advance. They're most common, you know, a few months out. But the Dalai Lama says, this is interesting, I love the Dalai Lama, who doesn't, um, <laughs> that the one of the fruits of a good mindfulness meditation practice is that a monk will know when his or his or her death is is imminent and will know almost uh, often a year or two in advance so this speaks to the uh continuation of consciousness the non-local state of consciousness if you will or or the well maybe it doesn't have to speak to that but it certainly suggests that there's some deeper knowing about um you know, when your death and that of a loved one, because some people have premonitions about loved ones as well, will occur. And of course, you know, in the Tibetan uh, Buddhist uh, cosmology, you know, there's reincarnation and there's the bardos and all the rest of it. So they realize that they're going on, but this human life is coming to an end. Anyway, pre-death premonitions, very common, uh, more common than we know. And often... Uh, it's because they feel like the, the experiencer is getting information about when their death or someone else's death is, is coming and what the cause will be sometimes. So that's the first phenomenon in the spectrum and the life experiences. The second phenomena is pre-death visions of visitations, which we've already discussed and which um, Joel had. Um, but he had, usually that's experienced by the, by the dying, but in this case it was a Joel who was, um, I, I'm going to suggest he had access to um, this experience that his mother was probably having in some form or another otherwise. Yeah, maybe he was being a surrogate because she had Alzheimer's, although there is terminal lucidity where people who have Alzheimer's can communicate. But I, I'm wondering if he was sort of channeling for her in a way to the family. Could be, could very well be. Um, and, and we have that in the research too. Joel's experience, while rare, less than 2 or 3%, we have cases of it, and they sound very similar to what you presented. And then terminal lucidity, thank you for bringing it up. That is yet another form of, 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 of an end-of-life experience that happens typically just before the time of death. It's usually, as you were alluding to, somebody could be cognitively impaired, and yet moments, sometimes minutes, hours, in some cases days before they uh, actually die, they come to a sense of, cognitive clarity 
and they can sit up in their bed and they can look at their loved ones and ask questions that suggest that they have been following the lives of their loved ones in, in detail, asking questions like, oh, I, I know you're on this soccer team, you know, Cindy, how's that been going for you? Or I realize that you sold your house and I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, found, you know, moved into it. And they're like, what grandmother? I mean, and we have this reported to us all the time. And when these cases come to us, this is like the people saying they can't even understand this. Uh, like they don't even want to share it because they, they think, I think that people think they're crazy. And yet terminal lucidity is very common. We also see this with physiological expression as well. We see people who were bedridden, get out of bed and walk to the toilet or more commonly walk around their bed saying, I need to get my suitcase and get my things together because they're coming for me. This is also a theme in end of life is this journey is beginning and they need to prepare for it. They need to travel motif, if you will. So there's that. And then, then, then the top experience, and I do say it's the top because it is the most, um, I think, most awe-inspiring, most, uh, you know, just filled with just mystical experiences. Uh, this is the shared death experience, which, which I've defined and can do more of a bit later. And then after death, we have direct post-death communication. And that's a different type of ADC. It tends to happen soon after the death. And it's very purposeful in the sense that it usually has something like uh, the recently deceased is speaking directly to the bereaved about something they want them to do or something they want them to know. It's something like, yes, if you're looking for where I stored that piece of jewelry, it's in the third drawer to the right. Or I would like for you to see so-and-so here during the funeral ceremony for me, which is happening tomorrow. So there's very specific communications. That's why I labeled it direct post-death communication. And you know you're having direct post-communication when the experiencer says, it was like they were in my mind. It was like they were reading my thoughts and answering my question. Like, what should I wear for this uh, funeral? And then all of a sudden, the mother comes in and says, I think you'd look really nice in that green dress. So it's that level of directness and connection, which suggests that the dying are hovering much closer to us than we know. Uh, and then there's just post-death visions and visitations, which are very clear in the sense that they're very coherent. Uh, the message, once again, is very direct. Uh, but it all, the, the, the message is usually confined in a certain way. It's usually, most of these cases are the deceased appears at the foot of the bed or at the corner of the room in the ceiling. They are wearing uh, some sort of attire that reminds the um, bereaved that this is indeed their loved one, and they can see them clearly. And it's usually they're a little bit surprised by this, are the bereaved, and they often uh, ask or inquire telepathically, oh, why are you here? You're, I see that you're here. It's kind of a, a, a question um contained in the realization you're here as if to say you're here why how explain and then the, then the deceased uh say something like uh you see that i'm alive and well 
I, I care about you. Um, don't worry about this, uh, or that. And, uh, I'll see you again later. And so it's, it's something like that. And, and, but it's really, these are dream visitations for comfort to provide support. Often it's like, you need not grieve for me in any way. I want you to know that I'm alive and well and we'll be together again soon. Sometimes when they happen a little bit later, it's like, I won't be able to visit you anymore. I'm moving on to another dimension, but I'll see you later. I'll see you at the time of your death. I'll be there to greet you. So these are all post-death visions and visitations. And uh, then there's synchronicities as well. And like we've already gone over some synchronicities. Electric, electrical form of electricity of, uh, of synchronicities are very common. They seem to have the ability to work with energy, light, electricity, you know, so uh, very common. But you also see it in birds and insects. And, you know, people talk about butterflies and birds circling above them in certain patterns or the appearance of a bird in a non-appropriate season. So cardinals in the middle of winter. You know, uh, so, and cardinal that just sits on a, on a branch right outside your window in the middle of winter. It's like, what's the cardinal doing there? So, so all this is bizarre, but when you see as much of it in the literature as I've seen it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't surprise me anymore. All meaning making, all seeming to invite communication, all seeming to get the attention of the bereaved. It seems to speak to the oneness of all of our consciousness together or the and the non-local ability of our soul or aka our consciousness of the living and the perceived supposed deceased <laughs> agreed um i think non-local consciousness uh, becomes kind of a given with so many of these experiences uh, to 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 think otherwise would eliminate the possibility of these experiences. And I think that's not uh, uh, an honest path. Because if you do that, then you have to, you have to somehow compromise the mental uh, psychological capacity of the experiencer. And that isn't warranted. Yes. So be mindful of what you say around your loved one with cognitive impairment and <laughs> they're paying more attention than you realize. So could we just go through a little bit of the characteristics of a shared death experience so that people can be really clear on what that is exactly? Yes. So as I said earlier, a, a lot of the features that you see in the near-death experience are the common features in the shared death experience. But the vantage point, the perspective is different because in the near-death experience, the near-death experience is the experiencer in a certain way. They are the ones who are in that afterlife and they're going through all of, of that. In the shared death experience, they're observing, witnessing, or sensing in a certain way. So the most important um, feature in the shared death experience, which is not in the near-death experience, is the experiencer, caregiver, or loved one observes the dying. They see the dying in the journey and they can participate in this journey in one of, in, in four ways that are not exclusive in a variety of ways. The first being sensing at a distance. This would be a remote SDE. So 
they may not, they, they would, um, either see, sense, smell the dying. Um, and this would be remote. Typically this is remote. They may even have a sympathetic, uh, physical response to the, uh, to the dying in their experience. In other words, they may not even see the dying or even sense the dying or smell the dying, but they may have physical symptoms similar to what the dying went through in their transition. Unfortunately, uh, we have probably a half a dozen experiencer cases where they sensed or had the same physical symptoms as their uh, dying relative who died of a drug overdose, for example. We have a half a dozen of those. And so they have the high fevers and they have the, the cardiac arrest, the difficulty breathing, the vomiting, all of that that goes that we know is um, part of our of the experience of a drug overdose. I should say that it's helpful on our research team. We have um, Dr. Monica Williams, who's an emergency room physician, and she has had her own share of end-of-life experiences, and she's our medical director. So when we have these cases, we try and match up the uh, presentation uh, the, the, of these experiences to see if they fit the experiences of the dying in these cases. And what we found is in a great deal of these cardiac arrest being another one where uh, the experiencer will say that they had trouble breathing, they had tightness of chest, they had tingling in their hands. So these are sympathetic sensing experiences. That's the first mode of a shared death experience. Um, and what's so beautiful about these cases are oftentimes they hear, of course, when they're having the experience, they just think they're having a health crisis. And they may even go to the emergency room. In fact, I just had an experience two days ago where someone said that she was having this experience and she happened to be in the doctor's office and the doctor office wanted to send her to the ER. Um, but then she found out later that uh, her, her uh, relative was dying at the exact same time she was in her medical appointment. So you can see how real they are. Um, so that is a sensing at a distance. That's the first mode uh, that an experiencer can uh, have the SDE in. Once again, it's not mutually exclusive. So the second and most common mode is what we call witnessing phenomena or observing phenomena. And that's observing the most common phenomena in the shared death experience, which would be seeing the dying, seeing deceased relatives, seeing elevated beings, like uh, often described as angels or light beings or spirit guides, having a life review, uh, either share, observing the life review of the person dying or sharing, or seeing a, usually a, described as a panoramic, uh, movie of sorts, uh, that could be of your life together with the dying. Uh, you can also, um, you know, see the light. Light is very common. So you could be moving towards the light in the distance or traveling up a cylinder of light. Also heavenly realms. These are realms that are, Defined similar to the NDE, which they're a vast cosmos, hyper alive, uh, beautiful, expansive, endless. Uh, so there's another feature we see. And of course, you also see the definition of these, um, as oh, you know, ineffable, very difficult to describe in human terms. So that's the second type, witnessing, you know, unusual death related phenomena. 
And then the third type is accompanying. This is where you actually accompany the dying on their journey. So you find yourself with the dying and you're progressing along, usually heading towards the light and usually uh, heading upwards. It kind of ascending. There seems to be an ascension in the SDE process. And then the fourth and final uh, mode of participation, which is actually a subset of accompanying, but it's so profound that we gave it its own, I gave it its own uh, category, and that is assisting the dying. Some people report that they were brought in to the scene, the transition state, with the dying to guide them and orient them along the way. So oftentimes they'll see the dying, the dying will be confused, and the experience will say, hey, dad, you're just, you've died. You died. And he said, you need to, I can help you. I want you to look this way, uh, turn away from the earth, essentially, and look towards the light, and you'll see that, hey, there's your mom and uncle um, there to meet you. Uh, and so then they get oriented, and they go with them along the way, but it's assisted in guiding. And we have about 6% of our cases are assisted or guiding, and when you get them, they're just lovely. They're just so powerful. So they're, they're the different modes of experience for the SDE. Yeah, the final one you mentioned, you shared a story or some stories in your book where people witnessed, had a shared death experience where they're witnessing the passing of a loved one, where there was a what you refer to as a conductor assisting them as, as someone who was coming who seemed to be unknown to the living. This is my favorite feature of all time uh, in the SDE. So thank you for bringing it up. So there seems to be this force, this powerful, either seen or unseen presence that guides and manages the transition of a human soul, spirit, consciousness from their human body into the afterlife. And it's presented, it can be presented in a variety of ways. As you mentioned in my book, I do share a number of just fascinating stories uh, that you can see the pattern that the conductor may or may not be visible, but when they are visible, they're often awe-inspiring. They're large figures. They have gravitas. They can be filled with love. They can be just beauty. They can be pulsing light. But they always have an intentionality. They are purposeful. And they can be directive. They can say, like in one case, just Angela is a case where she saw what she called a, an angel who had wings probably why she called her an angel. And when Angela uh, saw her, she was walking into the room of her mother-in-law who was dying at that time. And the angel proclaimed to her, wait, stand back. And then proceeded to move her wings, as she described like this, coaxing the spirit of this, of her mother-in-law's soul, spirit of her spirit, soul, out of her physical body and moving upward up to the ceiling and so very um like i said intentional and directive uh and they have a job to do and you can feel it 
and there seems to be timing involved. So I will share an experience um, in my own, in the book I wrote, because my father um, died uh, two years ago of Alzheimer's, and I, we were able to gather around him as a family. Um, and as he was dying, um, I was meditating with him, you know, meditating and matching my breath and things that I do to connect, to attune to the experience of uh, the dying, in this case, my father. And at some point, moments before he died, I was in a different space and my attention was drawn to the foot of his bed. There was kind of a, it was kind of a dark, almost looked like a planetarium in a certain way. Uh, and then I saw my grandmother and I saw my aunt. They were side by side. Uh, I saw my grandfather who I never met in uh, my lifetime because he died before I was born. And he moved briskly and purposefully to express uh, his love for my mother who was on the other side of the bed with my father. She was actually in bed with him and holding him. And she, he communicated, tried to communicate to her directly, but I don't think, but I, I, when I heard him say, thank you for loving my, my son, you've been a wonderful wife to him for 65 years. Uh, and I commu I repeated that to my mother and she felt that presence in a certain way, at least the power of the words. And, uh, then he, but he was told by the conductor who I could not see. And I, and I saw him move back almost, um, almost with a bit of shame and guilt that he shouldn't have done what he'd done to reach out to my mother. Uh, and he went back to his position. And I was like, what's going on here? Why, why was he moving so quickly when he moved forward to say thank you? And all of a sudden it felt like he'd done something wrong and he moved back. At that point, I didn't know there was a conductor. I didn't know that. But then I looked over at my grandmother and uh, aunt and said, I asked them, I said, why are you not taking him? Why is he still here? He's ready to go. And they said to me, my grandmother in particular, well, both of them actually, moved their gaze that was down focusing on my father, moved their gaze up and over the top of the bed and said to me, it is he who decides. He's in charge. Then I move my vision and attention in this space to where they were directing me, and I locked energetically with this force. And when I locked, I could feel it pull on my heart. And so I started weeping, and I just realized, ah, the conductor, he is in charge. And I felt the power the energy, the majesty of this force that had been empowered to, to move my father's soul, spirit, consciousness from his body at the appointed time. And he was working with all of it. He was working with the energy. He was working with, he was like almost like a, an alchemist working to find the right time, the right energetic conditions where my father's soul spirit could leave his body. And when I felt that, I got it. Whoa. Because the force is strong. Um, 
that was my experience of feeling the conductor. And then at that point, um, my brother walked into the room and, um, and he's a doctor and he was interested in the physical condition of my father. So he started asking questions. I broke out of that space. Um, so I didn't get to see the transition itself, uh, which is a disappointment, but I was grateful, very grateful that I got to feel the conductor and see my deceased relatives uh, waiting mm-hmm. for my father on the other side. So by the way, that's another feature of the, of, the, of the shared death experience, the greeting party, the welcoming party, the loved ones who've come to welcome, in this case, my father home. Wow, what an incredible story. And William, what did that do for you to have that experience during the time of your own father's passing after experiencing Alzheimer's? Well, I was very pleased, overjoyed that that my relatives, our relatives, were there to greet him. Um, I wasn't that I was surprised by that. It was just so affirming and that they were so close at hand. And there were others there as well. There were other relatives. Um, like the ancestry line seemed to be present there in a certain way. And then my father's um, friends from uh, grammar school and high school were also there and I could feel them. Uh, so, so that was, it was, you know, it was that gift of knowing that, you know, my father's going to be dying. He's dying. He's not going to be here, but he will be with family and friends on the other side. And so he will be comforted and he will know love. Uh, again, with his family on the other side. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. And for people listening, they might think, well, William has a gift for this, or certain people have these abilities. What have you discovered as far as, is there any commonality as far as what mm, personality types, or I don't know how you would uh, categorize it, of people who tend to have these experiences, or do you think that it's something that Really, anybody can have, um, but maybe they're just not always aware of them. Wonderful question, Emmy. You know, that's one of the things we've been looking at is, is there a type? Um, first of all, everyone should know that all sorts of people from all walks of life, spiritual, non-spiritual, atheists, believers, however, multicultural, you know, I we have cases from all over the world. And, you know, if they can happen to anybody, we seem to see that in about two thirds of the cases, there is a, I would call it a type of, of either a practice or a practice that influences the mind state. Um, and so about two thirds of these cases, I think 67%, is that much? 64%, um, will have some sort of meditation, prayer practice. Um, yoga, tai chi, or, you know, walking in nature, some sort of intentional practice that leads itself to the cultivation of an expanded mind, of a receptive mind, of an attuning mind. This is not, this is not, this is a mind that's capable of perceiving, capable of, uh, attuning to something. I think that, uh, if not a requirement, extremely helpful. You also see in our research that about 41% of experiencers, shared experiencers, will have more than one, like me. I'm a multi-experiencer. So there's definitely sent something to the fact that if you have one, 
you may now make yourself more open, uh, receptive to others. Um, I, I do trainings with people because there's such a interest in learning how to have these experiences. I think so many conscious people, which I think would be a lot of your viewers, would be interested in like, well, how can I make one of these happen? I'm like, absolutely. That's what I'm trying to teach my loved ones how to, how, what to do and how to have them. And so I've developed, you know, a program called Pathway um, that people can learn what we've learned, what I've studied, what I've seen about the causes and conditions for the shared death experience. And I've mentioned some of them. I think developing a supple, open, receptive mind in whatever practice you can do that in uh, is helpful. And then I also teach protocols to people where we, you know, I, I actually guide uh, the, it's an entrainment where I take people through guided visualizations and take the dying through a, di a dying process, a, a simulation and teach them how to call back to their just departed loved ones and how to do that and how to deal with the energy and how to see the landmarks in that space. Because there are, there are in this uh, landscape, there are both seen and unseen energetic markers along the way that, that, that I can teach and that can remind people where they are and when they can, when they can turn around and call back to their departed loved ones to invite them to join them in this uh, afterlife journey. And then there's also training for the experiencers as well, how to perceive, how to attune, what are, what's the type frame of mind and, and intentionality you want to be cultivating in and around the time of death. And after death as well, because these experiences happen after death as well. I have many people who will call me and say, huh, I just found out my mother died. What should I do? And I just take them. I said, let's take you into a, 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 a meditation. You know, for those of us who are in the brainwaves, probably try to cultivate a theta state, you know, a theta state of mind. So mind waves, you know. So, but that's, that's, we're learning about this. And I am very convinced that we're going to be able to uh, choreograph our death and dying experiences. And with that in mind, people will want to do that because when you have a shared death experience or get a visitation after the death of a loved one, it transforms your entire relationship to death and dying and to your relationship with the departed. It's spectacular. You found in your research that people tend to become more spiritual after having these experiences as well. Yes. Um, no matter who you are in terms of your religious spiritual beliefs at the time of the SDE, subsequent to that, you will likely identify yourself as spiritual, not religious. Uh, and, and we'll develop, we'll have a series of practices to support that. William, thank you so much for being with me for your clear passion and love and deep care really for all of us. You're very welcome, Emmy. I appreciate the, the depth of your questioning and the willingness for you to share your own experience with your mom and with Joel. And uh, it's been an honor to be on your show. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.